pastor, of course, has been working through a series, Walking in Wisdom. And uh, I was afraid during the worship part of the service here, the music part, when Adam told you I was going to talk about money, I was afraid you'd like run screaming into the cornfield. You know, I thought nobody's going to be here by the time I get up here. Money is one of those subjects people don't like to talk about. I know pastors that will not, I've met them, talked to them, that will not talk about money. They're scared to talk about money in their own church, even though scripture has a lot to say about it. Now, that's not why Pastor Nate is gone, <laughs> far as we know. But he did give me this assignment, which I thought was pretty curious. Uh, no, I, I'm, I'm privileged at that. But yeah, that's what we're going to talk about. But before we get into it, I like to think, and you can do this with any topic, anything in your life, that you first start out and think, you know, there's two great questions that human beings, every human being, need to confront and answer in their own life. Two. The first one, out of the book of Matthew, what think ye of Christ? Now, since I'm 60-whatever, I'm quoting, you know, King James Version. If you have a different version, what do you think of the Messiah? The question is, what do you think and what is your answer to the Lord Jesus Christ and what the Bible says about who he is and therefore, of course, about the gospel, about salvation? Every human being needs to hear that message and then they need to confront that question. That's first. Now, assuming you have confronted or engaged that question and assuming you are a believer in Jesus Christ today, Uh, Then the second question is out of the book of Ezekiel. And it was sort of kind of popularized, if you will, back in the 70s, 1976, actually, when Dr. Francis Schaeffer, the great Christian philosopher, published a book called How Shall We Then Live? That's right out of the book of Ezekiel. How shall we then live? Again, that's King James sort of phrasing. How do we live? Once you've become a Christian, how do we live? You can ask that every morning okay you can ask that every hour you can ask that in your business you can ask that over and over again it's a little bit like you know what would Jesus do but different how shall we then live if you are a believer that's a question you ought to be asking yourself now eventually we're going to talk about money but boy that question applies to everything so I want to start out just with a, a slide that talks for a moment about the fact that in answering that question at least I think we ought to develop a what could be called a Christian worldview. Now, worldview is kind of a fancy term. Uh, it just means philosophy of life, approach to life, a Christian perspective on life. That if we're believers, if we're Christians, then answering that question, how should we then live, we ought to try to figure out what's the Christian response, the Christian approach to our, our values, you know, how we, how we live how we treat others, uh, what we do in life and business and calling and family, on and on. And the scripture says in Peter, 2 Peter 1, that the scripture has given us, God has given us in the word of God everything for life and godliness. He's given us everything we need to answer that question and develop this Christian worldview on anything. You know, we're going to keep narrowing it down and get the money. But on anything in life, it's, it's there. On a micro level if we can say it that way personal level then of course that has to do with our behavior whether we're decent people uh whether we don't smoke and chew and go with girls who do whether we're behaving ourselves okay 
whether we're attending to the fact that God has certain dictates, if you will, commands, mandates uh, that he gives us in Scripture about how we should live our lives. Morally, of course, and lots of other ways. On a macro level, all all of what we call Western civilization, which dates back to right after the Renaissance and even more importantly the Reformation, in the last 500 or so years, has been developed and its strength is rooted in a Christian perspective and understanding about life and humanity, human being, about law, about education, about the arts, including music, about everything. It roots back to this Judeo-Christian moral understanding. Not all the founders of this country were believers in Christ, but they sure did understand the word of God. And in general, they honored it. Many of them were Christians. And then an entire system is set up based on that. It's one of the things that's kind of being challenged today in terms of truth under attack. So, yeah, the word of God has something to say, everything we need for life and God. It's about your life and my life personally, individually, and about all of society. Fantastic. It's unbelievable to think about it. God revealed himself. And then, of course, a couple of other verses that could have added meat to that. Uh, Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Are we really doing that in everything we do? Everything we do, there's no exceptions there, word or deed. And whether we eat or drink even. Whatever we do, we do it all to the glory of God. And, um, you know, that's a Christian worldview. If we can, with the Spirit of God, begin to develop that and apply it uh, in our lives. So it's what we want to do today. And we think about this a little further. There's another doctrine of Scripture that kind of flows out of this idea of Christian worldview. It's called doctrine of stewardship. Now, usually when you hear stewardship in a church context, you think, oh, he's going to preach about tithing. Well, that's in there. That's part of it. But it's only a little part of it, okay? Uh, oh, he's going to preach about money. Well, yeah, that's in there. But actually, if you look at what we got on the slide here, just to make us, you know, remind us, God owns everything. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills. He created the world in which we live. He set in motion all of how it operates, the natural world, you know, natural law, creation itself. And we're responsible. He bestows on us talents and responsibility for how we use them. And we're accountable to God for the right and best use of everything that he's given us. For our benefit, yes, our families, but to the glory of God. And that the idea then of stewardship goes well beyond just money, time. Are we using our time properly? Stewards, as in the Lord. Our talents Uh, I happen to believe, and you get different kind of perspectives on this from different Bible scholars, and I don't put myself as one of those, but you study scripture, that I think that when you're born, and I'm born naturally, natural birth, physical birth, that we have certain gifts. I don't believe this thing they used to call tabula rasa in psychology with a blank slate, you know, where you're born with just a blank slate and the kid develops kind of... No, I I think that kid right out of the womb has certain certain gifts, okay? We had four of them. Boy, they're different. And... uh, I think that, that happens. And you, and you don't know what those gifts are sometimes until much later in life. You see them. Sometimes it's athletic skill, musical talent, you know, all these different things that you can see. But I also think that when we, go, when we experience spiritual rebirth, we're born again, that God gives us certain spiritual gifts at that point. That he gives us, and they're distinctive. They may overlap, you know, a gift I might have may be similar to or same as a gift you may have. But I think that God gives us all of us gifts we all have gifts we don't have a no gift person out there 
There are certainly multi-talented people. And then some of us feel like, eh, I'm not one of those. You know, I'm a two-talent, one-talent. Well, you're at least that because God gives you, he gives you gifts. And he blesses you with what he wants you to have providentially. So he gives us talent. That's part of our stewardship, how we use those talents as unto the Lord. Uh, we're to be stewards of our relationships, including with the poor and needy. Our relationships. In Sunday school class here this morning, we happen to be in 2 Samuel 9. And David asked, are there any descendants from King Saul and Jonathan? They're gone. I want to honor them. And that's when he discovers Mephibosheth, who was crippled in his feet. And we're talking about the fact that in that, it's hard enough today to be disabled in some way. But in that day and age, that was tantamount to a, a desperate life. Unless somebody cared for you. Because you couldn't work. Especially a man. You, you couldn't work. And so David, in honoring his promise and covenant with Jonathan, brought Mephibosheth into his household. Took care of him the rest of his life and his family. and all. You know, it's a beautiful demonstration of grace and compassion. And of relationships. Caring for those in need. And there's always somebody needier than we might be. So, and then creation itself. There's a lot today about conservation, about environmentalism, about climate change. Whatever your feelings about the politics of all that. And there's lots of politics buried in all that. And it's just, it's just loaded. But whatever, God created it all. And yes, we are responsible for the world in which we live. I remember was, uh, a program. Remember the program The Waltons on TV? Remember that TV program? Some of the young ones looking at me like, what is she talking about? But uh, there was a program, John Boy and all that. And uh, one, of the, one of the grandsons was out walking on the mountain, Walton's Mountain, they called it, with Grandpa, you know, one day. And he was talking about being Walton's Mountain. Isn't this great? This is our mountain. He was a kid. Grandpa says, hey, our name happens to be on it. But we're all here for a short period of time. And we're stewards for a period of time of this. We're to take care of it. We're to honor it, and we're to leave it better if we can than how we found it. It was a great biblical statement on a TV show. I mean, it was right out of the Bible. It was great stuff. Theology right there. Grandpa Walton. Uh, yeah, we're responsible for the world. And even knowledge and learning, and of course, out of that medicine, and on and on, everything. And oh, by the way, also our treasure. <laughs> our time, our talent, and our treasure. That thing called money. So finally, we're there. Okay. This is the like big buildup so you don't run away. And uh, we want to talk about money. These are just some stats I grabbed really quickly. The Bible mentions money over 800 times. The Bible, we have the canon. Financial references, 2,300 plus times. Jesus talked about money more than heaven and hell combined. More than anything else except the kingdom of God. 11 out of 39 parables reference money. One out of every seven verses in Luke reference money. Now, I use the words, this wasn't off the internet, I use these words on purpose, reference money or financial references. And there's an important point here to make, that there are those, you can count, uh, or if you broaden it and say any time that wealth is referenced in scripture, like gold or silver or even cattle, that that's a reference to kind of like, you know, well, financial well-being, wealth, money, is that, a, is that part of the 2300 plus? You can get a lot of numbers. So it makes it seem like Jesus didn't care about anything but money, except maybe the kingdom of God. That was, eh, wait a minute. He had a lot to say about money and the right use of money. But it was always in relationship to how we honor God and what we should be doing in terms of our relationship with God and how we should be serving him. So it's possible to mention money in the process of making a comment. 
Like I could tell you that last Friday evening, Sarah and I went over to the Kent County Youth Fair and they have these jumbo corn dogs and they're $8. Man, it was it good. It was just great. I love corn dogs. I always get a corn dog at the county fair. And I sat there. We sat there under the trees. She got something else. And uh, we ate that. And I highly recommend a corn dog to you at the fair. Now, is my point about the fact that it was eight bucks? Or is my point really that, hey, that was a great corn dog, and I highly recommend that you go talk about it. That's what I mean. You can, you can refer to money, the Bible does, and reference it. And it's really not about money. It's just like a it's part of life and passing part of the story. But there is a lot in Scripture about, specifically, money. Which is why even in the book of Proverbs, as a pastor is taking us through walking wisdom in the book of Proverbs, that we want to talk about it. Mostly what you get in Scripture, I think this is important, I studied it in the last week or so, kind of came to me once again, that uh, what really matters to God about money in Scripture, and there is, there, there are lots of verses about how you should use your money, how you should invest your money, what you shouldn't do with money, how you can misuse money, but the, real, the really big theme, overarching theme with reference to money and wealth is, is the idea of pursuit of money. If that becomes your focus, okay, or speaking in philosophic terms, your sumum bonum, you know, your greatest good in your life is money. Or if you're a Star Trek fan, fan uh, your prime directive in life is, is money. No, no, it, it, it's the pursuit of money. No, God's worrying about it. Do not wear yourself out, right out of the book of Proverbs. Do not wear yourself out to be rich. Have the wisdom to show restraint. Cast but a glance at riches. And they're gone. For they will surely sprout wings. And fly off to the sky like an eagle. This is my wallet. There's not much money in it. Never is. And uh, as I said, we had four children. Loved them all. Still do. Raised them. And I used to make this joke when the kids were little. I'd get whatever kind of bill I happened to have. (laughs) We'd talk about it flying away. Now, if you've raised children or even if you haven't, uh, you know how quickly money can sprout wings and, you know, it, it has a way of flying away. It, you don't have it very long, right? And if that's your, your key in life, your pursuit of money, you're wearing yourself out to be rich. what the scripture is worrying about. Money has become an, an idol. Money has become a focus that has replaced where God should be. There's nothing wrong. We'll talk maybe more about that in a minute. We think of it. Uh, about financial security. You hear that phrase a lot, especially as you get older. Financial security, nothing wrong with that. And if you've been blessed with uh, a relative degree of financial security, you should be thanking God for that, okay? If you haven't been blessed with what you consider a relative degree of financial security, God has not forgotten you, okay? The point here is not financial security per se, but the fact that God is in charge and God will take care of you and God will not forget you no matter what it is he calls upon us to face. We can be just fine, right, in financial security, and then our health goes down. And then all of a sudden there are all these medical health bills, you know, insurance notwithstanding, can kind of change that picture real fast. That can happen to a lot of people. Probably has happened along the way to someone you knew or, or a relative. The Lord is just saying, look, you have to have money in right perspective. Nothing wrong with money. Nowhere in Scripture is money and the idea of wealth condemned. Uh, and I've read those kind of articles, again, where somehow God loves the poor more than the rich. I don't think so. I think he loves the poor, okay? And there's a lot in Scripture about how we should respond to the poor and, and needy. But 
God loves the rich. They're just human. They're all human beings. Every one of them. Every one of them. What do you think of Christ? How should we then live? Whether they're rich or poor. So that pursuit of what it is can become something that dominates our lives. And of course that can be any other kind of idol as well. But uh, it's the pursuit of money. Now, this is right out of the, the book of Proverbs in terms of honoring pastors' uh, desire to go through the book of Proverbs and draw wisdom from the book of Proverbs. And our subject, as Adam said, today happens to be money. What is Proverbs? And by the way, this is just a scratching the surface of what Proverbs says about money and wealth. But here are a few, some principles. Wealth is good, but it's not ultimate. Proverbs 10, 22. The blessings of the Lord brings wealth without painful toil for it. God is the source of your wealth. God is the source of the blessings in your life. God will give you resources and grant those to you if you're faithful on other levels in terms of work ethic, for example, and honesty. Uh, you know, honest days work for honest days pay, as they used to say. Uh, wealth is not ultimate. That's what the last verse about the pursuit. Don't wear yourself out to get money. And then there's this thing called greed. That greed is toxic. Proverbs 15, 27. The greedy bring ruin to their households, but the one who hates bribes will live. The greedy can bring down those around them. The greedy who always wants more, more, more. Uh, John D. Rockefeller... He was like the first known famous Rockefeller 100 years ago, and then all the other Rockefellers that you know, lived after him in the 20th century and still today. Uh, he was the one who built Standard Oil Company. He graduated from Princeton. He was a clerk. He did a variety of things, moved to Cleveland, Ohio, and he started building it, and boom, away he goes. And he built this massive. And in his day, in his life, he lived to be 98, he was considered the wealthiest man in the United States. And in current dollars, he was probably worth about $39.5 billion, with a B, dollars. Now, we didn't have income tax until 1913. He died in 1937, so most of his life he was building money without worrying about income tax. But there he is, and he had that kind of money. This is a true story, not apocryphal. That particular Mr. Rockefeller was asked one day, Mr. Rockefeller, how much is enough? How much is enough? And he said, one dime more. <laughs> Think about that. He's got $39 billion, one dime more. That's how much is enough. Now, I don't mean that that's the only thing he thought about in life, and he was a highly successful businessman, of course. But it's interesting you think about the need to have more. To put that into some kind of perspective, by the way, $39 billion. Tiger Woods, the great golf athlete, uh, a lot of talk this last year. He became a billionaire. One B, a billionaire. John D. had 39. The second richest man in the world today, reputedly, is Jeff Bezos. And Jeff Bezos is 59 years old. He is the founder and had various titles and still owner of Amazon. Amazon.com, okay? It has invaded West Michigan. And uh, our dog barks at all the Amazon trucks. So... There we go. He has about $200 billion, with a B, dollars. That's his current wealth. And even during pandemic, when some businesses were tanking, a variety of them, and online, okay, he made $25 billion, with a B, dollars during the pandemic, during those two years. 
So that goes up and down, and you can read about that. It's the same with Bill Gates and these other guys at that level. Uh, Gates isn't quite that level, but, you know, the billionaires. That, that you know, they can lose $150 million in a day, or their, their wealth can go down like $15 billion. Oh, my. Yeah, but they, have, they were $200 billion. Uh, that's what he's worth. So he could buy Mr. Rockefeller five times over. Uh, he could buy Tiger Woods 200 times. Okay? <laughs> Doesn't even make sense, right? I mean, here in West Michigan, uh, the DeVos family is usually listed in the four to five, six billion dollar range. These are public things uh, from Forbes or whatever. Uh, the Meyer family, uh, you know, it's privately owned. They're, they're in like the 10 to 20 billion dollar range there and you look at those numbers but Bezos at 200 billion I mean you can't even comprehend that wealth and you think well who's the richest in the world well some Saudi sheikh you know some Saudi prince uh, is got more money than that they all do over there petro billionaires so the idea of greed where, do, where does it fit in you think well I'm not greedy perhaps uh, then there's debt and debt in Proverbs 22 7 the danger of debt and, and it is like the rich rule, Proverbs 22, 7, the rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is slave to the lender. Now, if you want to scare yourself, as I did this morning, if you want to scare yourself, you get online and you go home and you look up something called the National Debt Clock. Okay, have you seen these where, like, you can look it up, the world population clock, and 7 billion plus people in the world, and it's going, you know, it's going like that. Because there's all these babies being born, it takes account of who's dying. And, you know, it's just going up and up, you know, watch it. I mean, right there, the population of the world is growing literally before your eyes. So it's the national debt. So if you look up the national debt clock, as of February 2022, for the first time, the United States, we passed 30 trillion, with a T, trillion dollars. 30 trillion. And you can sit there like I did in chair this morning for a little bit and just watch it go up tens of thousands of dollars as you watch it because of interest. It's just going up. You say, I don't comprehend $30 trillion. Well, I don't either. Uh, I did comprehend that when it said that, that um, Mr. Rockefeller there was probably the richest of his era and age at $39 billion. I thought, yeah, yeah, it's a little more than I make. So... Um, I didn't quibble with that. So I looked at that, uh, at national debt, 30 trillion. If you do it per capita, it's about 335 million, give or take a few uh, new babies all the time. In the United States, okay, if you do it per capita, and you and I are now going to be responsible for paying off this debt, each of us, just like that, would be responsible for $85,520. You think that's half my house or worth whatever whatever yeah 85,500 everybody everybody little babies and you say there's no way we can possibly pay that off here's a scarier stat and we'll get off the statistics 30 trillion dollars debt u.s oh by the way there's two other in in 1945 at the end of world war ii our debt at that point national debt Versus our gross domestic product, how much we're producing, the debt was 115% of our gross domestic product. In other words, the war was very expensive, and we were out of bounds. 115% versus... Now, it's about 99.3%. We 
we still have this incredible economy, despite the pandemic and all that, that produces at an at a unbelievable level. But our debt relative to our production is now 99 point something. We're getting there, right? Real close to that. The statistic I think scarier is that of that $30 trillion in debt, 37%, more than a third, 37% is now held by foreign interests, other countries of the world. It's called external debt. And that, in other words, the United States has the highest level of external debt of any country in the world. 37% of what we owe is not just to ourselves, it's to somebody else. Now I'm going to read the verse again. The rich rule over the poor and the borrower is slave to the lender. Now back about our conversation about passing of time and things changing and you know, I thought, well, you know, what is it that's going to be most threatening or is most threatening to American culture? And a lot of things in the last two, three years, we're getting all that, you know, we're upside down and sideways and giving us a lot of concern, moral and on and on and on. And, of course, external threats like China or Iran or even North Korea, you know, those kind of Russia. Those, okay, uh, you know, that I don't know that those are the things that God's going to use to bring this nation to its knees or its attention. It might be debt. It might just be debt because the American people are profligate, you know. We, we spend like there's no tomorrow. Uh, we don't save. Talking about culture and overall, certainly our government officials. And don't tell me Republicans are better at Democrats than this because it's just not true. Okay, uh, they spend money. And, and we just spend more and more and more. We just, Congress just passed this incredible inflation reduction bill. Uh, you believe that? Well, let me, uh, forget it. So there's, there's all of this concern about debt. So you can look at debt on a personal level, as you should. That's what Proverbs is about. And say, am I out of balance here? Are my credit cards whacked out here? Do I need to kind of put the brakes on? Do I need to think about stewardship? And not only just being able to pay my bills properly, but to care for my family property or not to get myself or our family upside down to not go and live beyond our means. And that may mean sacrifice. Well, what's sacrifice? Don't buy the boat. Well, that's a sacrifice. Uh, you know, don't go out five times a week. Well, that's a sacrifice. So, yeah, now it may be more sacrifice than that. It may be more of a belt tightening, as we say. It's no fun to go on diets, and it's no fun to go on a diet in your checkbook. But, well, what's a checkbook? All the young ones are looking at me. You're like, what? <laughs> what's that? Uh, it's no fun, you know, in your bank account. But it's wise. I mean, Dave Ramsey's made a whole career out of that kind of advice. Pretty conservative guy in terms of, hey, how you handle your money. And he's right however much percentage of the time, if not all the time. So as you look at that, you think debt is something that we can end up being a slave to money. We're a slave to the bank, not because the bank is doing anything particularly uh, aggressive. It's just that we owe money. Uh, we're a slave to that, paying back that debt. Therefore, we don't have money for the next point, generosity, to be able to share that which God has blessed us with. So there's a connection there. A generous life is a blessed life. As it talks about Proverbs 19:17, whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will reward them for what they have done. We're to be generous to others. 
I have a generous wife. And uh, there are times that we've been out and about, and she's done a lot of work with, with women's ministries and women's groups, and we'll see a woman on the street who clearly is having and has had a difficult time. Maybe she's living in the street. I don't know. And Sarah's done it time and again. And she's gone over and just given that woman a few dollars or out the window in the car. And I'll say something like, um, I've done this a few times. Uh, hey, you know, she's probably going to spend it on drugs. That uh, the, the, the men and women who work in this kind of help the homeless, help the poor, help the, the people, will tell you not to do that. You know, buy them a sandwich or whatever, but not because they'll go spend it on drugs and alcohol. I'm probably right because based on everything. She's also right when she comes back and says, look, I'm not responsible for what they do for it. I'm responsible for my own generosity. And I think she's right. And I honor her for that. Generosity. You don't have the ability, as much ability, to be generous if you've got ourselves upside down in debt. To the point where, again, I don't think anywhere in Scripture it says debt is wrong. That debt is evil. That debt is something that, you know, and if you've committed to not be in debt, God bless you. Go for it, okay? So I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that there's perhaps we'll call it responsible debt, maybe investment in your home where you have equity and the value of a property as opposed to debt on something that's going to drop like a rock as soon as you drive it out of the boatyard, okay? I'm not against boats. Uh, But as soon as you walk away with it, you know, so you know, there's, there is a, a transition on that. So you think about that in generosity. But also then that God provides. And uh, Proverbs eleven twenty eight, God will always provide. And you say, well, have you had experience with that? If you've lived long enough, you probably have. If you've been a believer long enough, you probably can stand right now and relate a story or two where God provided that had a financial connection. And I remember more of that when we were younger with four kids and old cars that would break down and winter times that I didn't like back then because the cars would break down. Uh, I like winter now. <laughs> and so you look at it and say, God provide. Those who trust in their riches will fall, but the righteous will thrive like a green leaf. There is a, there is a riches and a blessing and a fulfillment. There are people, there are people, I saw this statistic this last week, there are 17 million Americans, that was just the latest stat, who shop. You think, oh my goodness, shopping? Okay, we'll throw that in. Shop to the point that they cannot afford it. That they, they stress and turn upside down their credit cards, their bank accounts, their, any assets they have, their relationships are threatened, and they are addicted to shopping. They, they don't seem to be able... To, to stop themselves. You say, why do they do that? Probably the same, same basic reason, and I'm not an expert on this, of, of any addiction. It gets back to you're trying to fill this hole in your heart. It's a spiritual hole. It may not always be, is, is God there or not? It may be something else in terms of your sense of yourself and lack of self-esteem. But with lack of self-esteem is connected to how God looks upon you, not how you look upon yourself. And And as you work through all of these things that we make choices in our lives and sin has an impact on us, then spending money. Now, I know you go shopping sometimes and it's just as fun because you want to get away and do something. I'm not throwing rocks at that. 
It's like comfort food, okay? <laughs> Who hasn't eaten comfort food? And we were joking last night because we were with some young folks and whatnot that when our kids were younger, uh, we say, hey, it's time to go to bed because mom and dad, we're going to get out the good food when you go to bed. You know, we our kids that, this is when they're junior high and high school and they go, rah, rah, and they go to bed and we get to have the M&Ms. So, um, you know, we had a lot of fun. Comfort food, we all do that. I've done that. There's nothing wrong with that per se, but it could become something that can be threatening to our health, to our weight, to a whole lot of things, uh, shopping uh, to a degree like that. And, and it becomes this thing you're trying to fill in a sense that God is not uh, providing, that somehow I've got to do that. Credit cards can be extremely dangerous that way because they're just always there, and uh, that'll take care of it until it doesn't. Um, so God has a lot to say, again, about money. We wanna, the last couple of things we want to talk about here is this something called gambling. I haven't talked about gambling for a long time. 25 years ago, I wrote a book called uh, Seducing America is Gambling a Good Bet. And we later redid it and called it Is Gambling a Good Bet. Can't believe it's been 25 years. But uh, it was about legalized commercial gambling. And I really looked at it at that time. That's back when the casinos got started. You know, the 1988 Federal Indian Gaming Regulatory Act got it going. And casinos we have around here go back to that all over Michigan. And uh, there's no 11th commandment. I've done all these radio interviews on it. There is no, you can't look at the Bible and say, thou shalt not gamble. And people like to look at that and say, aha, you know, you're inventing a sin. Well, we'd be wrong, I'd be wrong if we invent a sin. That's called legalism. But there is no 11th commandment. There is content in scripture that begins to make you think about these things. In the verse that we use, a couple of them, Proverbs 12, 11, he who works his land will have abundant food. He who works his land will have abundant food. That's work ethic. But he who chases fantasies lacks judgment. There's a similar verse later in Proverbs, Proverbs 28, 19. He who works his land will have abundant food. But the one who chases fantasies will have his fill of poverty. (laughs) I always love that phrase. Fill of poverty seems like emptiness, right? How can you have a fill of poverty? But you're, you're, if you chase fantasies, you're full up to here with poverty. And that's what happens with people who become addicted to gambling, and many people do. Or they simply spend too much with their gambling and they get involved. Now, no, there's no 11th commandment. I'm going to share with you in a moment uh, why I think gambling is something you should stay away from and why I at least think it is a sin. And why historically a lot of evangelicals or or uh, Christian leaders back to Tertullian in the first century thought gambling was a sin. The reformers thought gambling was a sin. But again, in the last 50 years in this country, you'd be like, ah, it's not so bad. It's no big deal. I know Christians who go to Vegas every year. Okay, I don't, I'm not referring to anybody here because I don't know. Uh, or hang out in these casinos. They say, it's my money. Yeah, but you're a steward of that money. Had a guy call up one time on a radio interview and says, hey, every year my wife and I, we go to the Bahamas and she shops and I gamble. What's the difference? And I said on the radio, I said, well, for one, she comes home with hats and you come home with nothing. Okay. <laughs> there's a transaction when you shop. There's not much of a transaction when you gamble other than, you know, the entertainment value, whatever. So there's no injunction. You could say it was, it's a matter of Christian liberty. But I think there are other ways of looking at this. 
and we'll wrap up with this another comment, is that um, there are plenty of things that we consider sin that are not specifically prohibited in Scripture. Hard drugs, narcotics, I mean the bad stuff, heroin, cocaine, fentanyl. If I ask you, is that a sin to eat, eat that, you know, and take that and buy, you probably, most of you say, yeah. Well, that's nowhere condemned in Scripture. Here's one that's even touchier. Human slavery is never condemned in Scripture. Now, there's plenty in Scripture that would lead you to say human slavery is a sin. We're created in the image of God, you know. Uh, start with that. So I'm not saying it's not. But there's no specific prohibition. No, like, 10th, 11th, 12th commandment says, uh, slavery. That's a good one to ask the Lord about when we get to heaven. Why didn't you put that in there? Um, Gambling, just because it's not condemned in Scripture, doesn't mean, again, you don't want to invent sins, but here are at least five principles I'll just share with you. Uh, First of all, we believe in a sovereign God, do we not? That's the God of the Bible, sovereign God. Omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, God of the universe. That God and luck have nothing in common. In fact, luck and the idea of a sovereign God are mutually exclusive. People are always trying, you hear celebrities on late night TV. Oh, I've been lucky. You know? Well, eh, you know, you had this or that opportunity, but you also blessed with talent and you worked hard, you know, but that's their way of being modest. I've been lucky. Uh, you hear that a lot. Or I hear sometimes Christians wishing each other good luck. Now, I know that's a colloquial easy phrase and they don't mean something evil about it and I'm not you know picking on that but I don't think luck is actually I don't think it exists I don't think bad luck worry God's in charge okay so for me sovereign God and luck they don't go together and and gambling is all about well I'm going to get lucky you know and then theft uh we know that theft is wrong you know thou shalt not steal quote King James uh gambling is like theft by mutual consent okay you you're going into the casino by the way the house never loses the house never loses that's why they're a business that's why they make money lots of it okay why there are little cameras everywhere watching even the pit bosses and the and and the beverage girls uh, not just you the gambler why because people cheat people steal people want that money greed no uh theft uh, you're going in there and you're putting your money down and you're, you're not expecting anything in return. You're hoping. Um, and by the way, casting of lots I had on the last slide is not an example of gambling in Scripture. Casting of lots is uh, comparable today to what we do if we like, draw straws. We say, we don't know what we're going to do. Who's, who should go mow the grass? So we're going to draw straws. Short straw mows the grass. Well, the reason that little method works, got four straws here and four of us, is that we're not omnipotent, we're not omniscient, we have a finite mind. I can't tell which one of those straws, I don't have Superman x-ray vision, I can't tell which one of those straws is the short straw, and so in that sense it uses our finiteness as a means of making a decision. And in the Old Testament, God did seem to use it at different times to direct. And people sometimes say, well, uh, the soldiers gambled for Christ's robe at the foot of the cross. No, they didn't. They cast lots. And you say, well, they were trying to figure out who got the robe. That's right. But they didn't risk anything. Nothing on their part. They didn't put anything in the pot. They had sheep knuckle bones that they kind of like dice, the original dice, 
that they called casting of lots, or they had to do little rocks, whatever, this casting of lots, to figure out who got the robe, because they didn't want to tear it up. But they didn't risk anything. That's not gambling. Gambling is where you put something in a pot and you risk it. And you depend on this thing called chance uh, to bless you or to give you, you know, the right kind of response. So I don't think casting of lots is an example of, of gambling. And then there's that. Then covetousness. Well, that's like greed. Uh, take the money out of the casino and tell me how many people will continue to go there. Okay. Oh, it's so much fun. Okay, but take the money out of there and how many people will continue to go there? They're not going to go there. Why? Because they want the money. Why? Because they're covetous. Okay? It promotes it. Stewardship. We've already talked about time, talent, and treasure. I think that you and I are accountable to God for how we use intelligently our time, talent, and treasure. And to go in there and place money at risk where we have no influence over what's going to happen to it, I don't think that fits our stewardship model. And finally, it is potentially addictive. Just like alcohol or drugs, not everybody who participates in gambling becomes addicts. Not everybody. And some people at various levels. Uh, but some, desperately so. Desperately so. So for me, yeah, I, I say it is, and I think it fits into in terms of Proverbs uh, wisdom, that uh, it's something that we should avoid. And uh, uh, whether we think it's sin or we think it's just unwise, that we would stay away from it because it is something that can destroy our lives, destroys a lot of people's lives. So what about the lottery? The lottery is the worst odds out there. They are by far the worst. You'd be better off to go to the casino and gamble with the uh, slot machines than you would be the lottery. And the state of Michigan is into it lock, stock, and barrel, and so are lots of other states. And it's a bait and switch. Uh, they say this is going to help education. Well, no, that just means that money that used to be earmarked for education now is going to be gone to something else, other tax money, and this is a new tax. And it's a new tax, it's called a regressive tax, it has the greatest impact on the poorest people. You know, if you're worth a billion dollars, you go in there and lose a thousand, okay, that's not the same as a person who's worth $1,200 and they lose a thousand. But it appeals to people on that lower level. You say, well, what about all these people that win these unbelievable prizes? You ever read about any of them? Most of them, not all of them, you know, to be honest and fair and accurate. Most of them end up in terrible situations. They lose their money. Okay, they're like these uh, incredible athletes, uh, uh, like these uh, 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 Olympic athletes who become superstars literally overnight or in one week's presentation, and uh, you know, skating or whatever. And she's on the front of magazines all over the world, and millions of dollars coming her way, and she can't handle it. And and then all kinds of stuff happens: alcohol and people taking her money and all. Mike Tyson. You think, well, yeah, he was a jerk. Yeah, but the, the guy grew up in the street. Okay? He was arrested 38 times before he was 13 years old. He's lucky. He, he's not lucky. He's, he's blessed to be alive. Say it gets in your head. He's blessed to Freudian slip. He's blessed to be alive. And he lost all that money because people took advantage of him. And yeah, he made all kinds of mistakes, horrible ones, including crime. Uh, but it is a matter of, uh, it's not what it seems. So we're to, be, we're to be stewards. That's the, the point of Proverbs. We're to be good stewards of everything God gives us, including our money. Now, Pastor uh, Nick mentioned, and we'll make a commercial out of this, but we'll mention it, that Thursday night here at the church happens to be with Sat7 USA that I'm associated with at 7 o'clock right out here. Uh, we're going to offer a, an estate planning seminar. It's free, 
And if you choose to pursue any of that, to work on your will or your estate, uh, your, 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 your family trust, if you have one, or want to create one to avoid prograde, that's all free. So we're not selling anything, but it is about stewardship. It is about stewardship, because if, if this audience is representative, 60% of you sitting there don't have even a will. And your family, therefore, is at greater risk. You think, well, wait a minute. I don't have a will. Yeah, yeah, you do. State of Michigan has one ready for you. State of Michigan. So if, if you're younger and you have children, you think, wow, what if happens in God's providence, uh, the missus and I are gone. State of Michigan gets to decide where those three kids go. Not you. You don't want that. So there's those kind of things. So it doesn't matter about age. It doesn't matter about wealth or relative assets. It matters about stewardship. And so anyway, that's an opportunity if you'd like to take advantage of it. Uh, we'll see you there. And my colleague uh, from Oklahoma will be in and we'll make that presentation. But, but God is good. And, and God it, uh, promises, as we said, to provide, uh, to trust in uh, or put our trust in him, uh, not in specifically riches per se. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the fact that we can come together and think about what your word has to say about something like money. Uh, should give us uh, wisdom with the resources with which you've blessed us, including our time and talent and our relationships. Father, we thank you for this church and its stewardship of the word as it presents the word faithfully. I ask your blessings on Pastor Nate and his family as uh, they're gone. And trust the Lord to give them uh, safety and a good experience uh, with what they're doing. Father, we thank you again for all that you've done for us in Christ's name. Amen.